The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and I'm very pleased indeed this week to be welcoming Armando Inucci as my guest. Armando, we know to you all as a screenwriter, a journalist, a producer of Hollywood films, the creative Aaron Partridge and all the rest, but he appears before us today as a poet, the author of a new book called Pandemonium, Some Verses on the Current Predicament. Armando, welcome. Hello. Now, I sometimes do this when I'm interviewing people about poetry. Is Can I ask you to read a little bit so people can get a flavour of it, if you have a copy oh, of the book okay. to hand? Right. Just a few lines, because it's, yes. it's its own thing, you know. Yes. OK. What shall I read? Let me see. Well, here's a section where Boris... Well, I'll explain who Boris is, because he's not quite who you might think. But the earthly figure we call in this poem, Boris, has asked his accomplice, Matt, to try and help him out from the predicament by going to get some friends involved. So this passage here describes how Matt goes down into a kind of strange region where he, he speaks to his circle of friends. OK, here we go. How can I describe with imperfect tongue that sewer of rank and rabid fervour, the circle of friends, who lay writhing flanks and limbs entangled like a clump of worms gathered by a fisherman and placed in ready bucket for his line. So these friends coagulated round themselves, each one bait for another, bait upon bait, knowing one another and each one known till they knew themselves inside out, arses eaten by faces, feces dropped on eyes, arms reaching into guts, lips retching hands out whole, Bodies intimate and knotted like a dummy braid. There you go. It's not all like that. That's a nice <laughs> a nice visual <laughs> image to leave our listeners yeah. with. This poem, what what was it that made you think about the present predicament, the ongoing predicament, as I think it is, that made you think, this is going to inspire me to verse, I'm going to write a poem about well, it? Well, it all happened quite spontaneously. There was no plan. You know, I, like most of us, thought we'd sit it out and see what happens. And then, you know, there was sadness and confusion and isolation, but also that strange period of having time to think and to read and to, you know, be with your family, not knowing how long it was going to be. And I really, over the last 10 or 15 years, have found privately and, and without wanting to publish anything, no intention to publish, I've been writing little poems and little verses and sometimes rhyming, sometimes not, sometimes surreal, sometimes quite detailed, uh, partly for my own amusement, partly for my own therapy, really. I just find it a way of expression. You know, when people have a lot of time in their hands and someone might who can draw can just will just pick up a pad and scratch out a drawing or etch out something or, you know, I don't have that facility. I can't play an instrument, really. So I've got into the habit of just fashioning words, <laughs> taking words for a walk, I suppose. So that's been something I've been doing. And, and I think, actually, it's also an age thing. I think as people get older, they return to poetry. If they read a lot of poetry when they were younger, 
And then in your 20s and 30s, you're into novels. And, and then in your 40s, if you're male, you read biographies and histories. I think when you hit 50, there's something about going back to poetry, the concentration of it, the density of it, the purity of it, the playfulness of it. So I've been reading lots of poetry again recently over the last 10, 15 years. So my reaction to what was going on around me, and I, I thought, will it be a film? Will it be a TV show? I don't know. And also, I don't know when this will be, because this may take years to play. But I found myself writing verse. I found myself writing something that sort of started off as a kind of playful nod to Paradise Lost, which, you know, I spent three years trying to write a thesis on and never completed, but then started incorporating, you know, the heroic tradition. And it's only when I fin and I would do like five lines, put it away for a week, take it out again, do another five lines, put it away. Maybe a month would go by and I'd take it out and I'd add another 20 lines. And But, you know, as, as the months went on, it, it sped up and I was writing more and more. I sent it to my agent when it was two thirds of the way through and said, am I mad? Am I going mad? And she said, Clara Alexander said, no, you should carry on and we should publish this. But I hadn't written it as something with the intention to publish it, at least when I started it. Once you get that deadline and I work to deadlines, then that concentrates the mind wonderfully. And that's when I did the bulk of the work on it, really. But I don't know whether it's just growing up with all these poets in the language of poetry swilling around in the back of my head. It just felt to me like that's how I wanted to express it. I wanted to do something that was like a snapshot of the feeling of where we are at the moment, rather than a summing up or a polemic. A kind of something that captured, yes, there are moments of comedy, but also the sadness as well. And the, the sense of the public, the political, I suppose, which we all as an audience could watch and we were watching every night on our screen. So we were all connected in that way. And yet underneath that is the private, you know, the millions of, of individual private narratives that we've been having across this pandemic. You know, each one has their own story to tell about what's happened to them, how they got through it. I mean, you mentioned Milton and, yeah. you know, the footprint of Milton is very heavy on this. I think that passage you just read actually reminds me of the sort of, you know, the, the grappling with chaos early on in Paradise Lost, that kind of multi-faceted yes. sort of blob of malevolence. That's right. I mean, in Pandemonium, which is yep. a word Milton invented for Paradise Lost, which is the home of Satan and his satanic angels, it's all very visceral and it's sulfurous and muddy. And, and I was also thinking of Hieronymus Bosch and those drawings, those paintings of hell, where, you know, punishments, you know, various musical instruments are rammed up people's fundaments for all eternity and, and it's all very physical and horrible and knotted and and people are not having a very pleasant time at all really and I suppose also there is I read sometime last year Clive James has done a translation of Dante's Divine Comedy and again Inferno is full of these circles of people being punished for eternity in all sorts of medieval ways yes like the friends of matt hancock so a new circle yes exactly yes i mean clive james when he was doing the inferno i don't think he did terza rima i think he turned it into couplets you've yeah. taken something that's very obviously kind of miltonic in its approach or, mm. or at least there's a, a bit of the augustans in there as well i think in the kind of diction but you haven't kind of put it in pentameters what was the reason for that i mean did you not think like this wants to be blank verse or this wants to be couplets. 
No, I thought I wanted to do it in my own style, but, you know, trying to adhere as much as possible to something like, I mean, Milton, when he published Paradise Lost, he had to publish a, a sort of an apology at the start, explaining why it didn't have to rhyme. Yeah. <laughs> a great, great justification. <laughs> I kind of wanted to be both poetic, but also slightly conversational to keep it flowing, not to feel too much of a contrivance behind it, I suppose. I've tried as much as possible to adhere to the kind of free verse of, of Paradise Lost, but, you know, without making it a golden rule, really. I didn't chop a finger off for every time I broke the rule. Yeah. Metaphorically. So there's that. And, and also, I reread the Iliad. I read, there was a new translation of the Odyssey that came out that I read. And going back even to poems like Beowulf and, you know, Seamus Heaney's translations of Beowulf and, and then there's Gawain and the Green Knight. And so all those... That, that sort of hinterland of heroic and epic and battle verse that, that we have. I just wanted it to be there, all of it lurking behind it, but not really expecting anyone to pick up on any of the references. I mean, the, the equivalent I give is like, is Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you know. Terry Jones was actually a, a kind of medieval scholar and the Holy Grail is littered with very, very accurate references to Arthurian legend and the, the telling of the stories and the various tropes that were used and so on. But you're not expected to know any of that. It doesn't, doesn't spoil your enjoyment of the film one bit whatsoever, not knowing any of that. And that's how I wanted it. I wanted it to connect with people today. Those looking for it will, will see references and sort of mirror imaging of, of stuff from kind of <laughs> that poetic heritage. Yeah, there is lots of that in there. I mean, can I ask you a bit about your relationship with Milton? Because it's one of the things that's always stuck in my head about you is I've seen you doing all the amazing, you know, very modern contemporary things you've been doing. Like, this guy's a serious scholar of Milton. In fact, I kind of credit you, I think correctly, with the important poem-ruining insight that the first lines of Paradise Lost can be sung to the tune of the Flintstones. That's right. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that bitten tree. I think that was the point when, when I realised that, that I decided to stop writing my PhD on Paradise Lost because clearly comedy was, <laughs> was driving this <laughs> and academia was taking a back seat. I don't know. And Milton himself doesn't strike me as a highly sympathetic character. He's not necessarily, as a personality, someone that I would idolise. You know, he was quite... He was quite harsh to work with. And, I mean, he took his high principles to such an extent that he was a bit of a, a spoiler of fun. and so. On. But Paradise Lost is such a magnificent... I was going to say folly, really, but it, it works. But it's a kind of gargantuan and ambitious attempt to try and portray heaven and hell in human words. And he kind of gets away with it. It's oh, pretty ambitious. Of, it's very ambitious, Yes. And he puts it down to the muses that visit him nightly and inspire him. But it's full of lots of verbal tricks. And as I studied it, you see, I mean, Satan, who is, you know, rather like Darth Vader, is, is the one we all want to see scenes filled with in the book. He's actually, you know, he uses rhetoric to fool everyone. He, when they're plunged into hell, he gathers all his troops and basically does a speech where he says, fundamentally, it's not that bad. You know, we can make something of this. You know, the mind itself can can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. Yes. You know, if you just if you just think positively, it's amazing you'll get that through speech. <laughs> it's a bit, yeah. a bit bit like the Monty Python. You know, the the Black Knight who has got both of his arms and legs cut off and says it's a flesh yeah. wound. Yeah, exactly. And it's sort of you know, <laughs> twas ever thus. You know, it, remember Trump? You know, when COVID came upon us, Trump saying it'll just disappear. It'll disappear yeah. like magic. It'll go away. And we are wooed by. 
But people who can use a huge public platform to manipulate argument under impressive sounding words, you know, are are frightening, really. Well, I mean, speaking of one such, you know, the protagonist of your story mm. is is a sort of Boris character. He's yeah. Orbis Rex, king of the world. Yes. King of the world, or world king, really. The world, world um, king, which is obviously I mean, a pun that must have just, when that struck <laughs> you, sort of Latin anagram. Yes, what happens is he's known to the gods as Orbis Rex, but they realise that that would be too frightening a, a name for his earthly version. So they've turned the, the letters around to form, Orbis is turned into Boris as a much more kind of personable, you know, but it hides a kind of larger, greater strength and nobility and godhead. But this character, I mean, you know, I assume you, perhaps unfairly, to be mm. kind of more or less hostile to the Prime Minister and the way he conducted himself through the pandemic. But actually, in this book, his sunniness, his <laughs> cheerfulness, does have its own sort of energy. I mean, you know, oh, he's absolutely. surrounded by sweetness and light. Yes, sweetness and light, who are the two advisers who stand either side of him at his public appearances, mostly contradicting what he's saying, but <laughs> ending it by saying how much they agree with him but want to present the facts that kind of contradict <laughs> what he's just said. I wanted to portray someone who uses positivity as a sort of driving force for his being. That's how he defines himself. And I think we saw that, you know, we, I think we all could see when the pandemic started that nobody really knew what to do. And that's perfectly understandable. I think where we started questioning and feeling confused, angry, puzzled, mortified, was after that summer when he himself had experienced serious illness and yet the same error was happening again, which is, oh, it'll be fine. I'm sure if we just wrap up warm, we'll get through Christmas. And it just got worse. And it's that, that combined with the sort of self-flagellation that Dominic Cumming expressed when he was up before parliamentary committees saying, you know, how terrible it was and, and, and actually saying how awful it was that someone like him should have been in charge. Sort of the, the mea culpas of all mea an uber mea culpa. That's what intrigued me, really, that, that seeing these very human psychological traits played out in public in front of us, but it having a real life or death consequence for everyone, really. And again, I didn't want to... I didn't want to write something that got any more detail than that. I just wanted to express the emotion, the mixture of emotions that I think collectively we've been feeling, which is wanting it to work, willing people on, but at the same time becoming more and more worried and puzzled by some of the decisions being made. Not least of which is, you know, pouring billions of pounds into the companies owned by friends of friends of sister-in-law's of friends who've never made a piece of masking equipment in their life. Well, that, that within it seems to be almost the kind of most aggressively targeted of the things that you're satirising. Is that the thing that got your goat most about the... That's what, I mean, that comes early on in the, yeah. in the poem. So chronologically, I think that initial phase, although it happened initially, we only caught up with it, I think, over the summer as that great book, Failures of State, that the Sunday Time Insight team brought out, lays it all out. And I think that did touch a nerve. I didn't really want to do Dominic Cummings' drive to Bernard Castle, but I have, I have a Dominic in the underworld just driving relentlessly around a pillar for all eternity. All these epics have a blind prophet. 
who is the guide. So I thought that would work. <laughs> he had, he's condemned to test his eyesight for all eternity. And neither did I want it to be a consistently attacking thing. I wanted it to... I wanted there to be some raw emotion about it. Not necessarily... There is anger, but there's also sadness as well and, and trying to articulate that sadness and that sense of, yes, we're all with our families together, but we're also separated from the rest of our families and all our friends. And yes, we can connect by digital screen, but that only really emphasises how far apart we are and how all these trying to have like wine tastings on Zoom Yes. Well, it's fundamentally you on your own in a room with a bottle of wine. You know, it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> the best sort of it. wine tasting, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> but filming it, yeah, yeah, yes. But allowing the public to watch, yes. Maybe that's what it got reduced to, really. <laughs> Can I ask you, in terms of sort of how you put the structure together, obviously Milton yeah. gave it 12 books. You've done seven parts and an epilogue. So I just wanted to find the beats of the story, really. And when I felt I had the beats, I knew there was a central section which would be a very sort of bleaker look at actually the state of the nation, you know, across the country, what's going on in every household. That was a central sort of still point of it. And then as we come back, a bit more energy, as we head to the, the final battle, which, you know, I saw as a kind of Agincourt kind of, you know, this will be writ large in our nation's history with, with all those heroic speeches from our great leader as rows upon rows of doctors and nurses fire arrows of vaccine into the air and hope for them to land. And so I knew I had a final battle and then I, I knew I had a concluding speech that sort of, rather like, I took my cue from Paradise Lost actually because it ends in a very peculiar, Adam and Eva are just let out into the world. You know, the world was all before them and they with wandering steps and slow took their solitary way. Yes, it's you echo very, that line, don't you? Yes, absolutely. And, and it's a very deliberately downbeat kind of there is no sudden conclusion to this actually it's more an opening into the rest of the rest of time and the rest of space so with this you know I have Orbis attempt to sum up and declare a tremendous victory but there is that hint that actually there's more to come and even bigger battles to come you know he's about to head off and in the last few lines we have him heading off to fight against the sun that's his next big battle Yes, you've also got a, a very kind of pungent pun on falling ill. That, yes, that sort of right at the end, I think. Pays yeah. it off, yeah. yeah. Can I ask how you see it now? I mean, one of the, I don't know whether it strikes you the same way, but one of the, to me, quite strange things about where we are now mm. is that epidemiology has been so thoroughly kind of sucked into the culture wars. You know, there's this... Yes, and there is that, that thing that science has become political. You're wearing a mask has become political. And it is, you know, to go back to poetry where a word can mean two different things simultaneously, you know, viral has become literal in that there is a virus, but there also is the viral hoaxes and misinformation about the virus that's been spreading. And one is now affecting the other. You know, it's now affecting whether people choose to get vaccinated or choose to wear a mask or choose to behave with due concern for others and distancing and so on. You know, prior to the pandemic, that was already happening. I mentioned Donald Trump, but that, that sense of autocratic politicians who feel that they can manipulate, they can express feelings, that as long as they can emote and use the right words to emote, actually, it doesn't really matter what it is they do. And it's not so much Trump, but his 
supporters and enablers who have allowed us to reach the stage where half of his country still thinks that the, you know, the vaccines don't work. Quite a lot of his country thinks that he genuinely did win the election. Quite a large percentage of them actually think that the raid on Congress on January 6th didn't happen. I mean, that's the stage we're at now where objective truth has been so queried and quizzed and, and whatever that it's become undermined so that nobody believes anything. You know, <laughs> any statement is just as valid as any other statement. You know, that's the kind of frightening thing. Do you think there's a way back from that? And I mean, if you're in that sort of situation, does that make it harder to write sort of satire because there isn't a <laughs> kind of common if, assumption to Guy. I don't know if a satiric or a comic take on all that is one that will necessarily avert disaster. I think it has been a learning process for scientists as well because I think they've realised actually how difficult it is to... I've said this before, but science is not an exact science in that science is all about examining the facts and coming up with uh, an explanation or a theory to explain the facts. But if upon examining more facts, there's a better theory, then you get rid of the earlier theory, you know, you develop the earlier theory. So it's never exact, it's always growing. And, and we saw that in the early stage of the pandemic, when people didn't quite know what the right behaviour was. The WHO at one point, I think, said, don't wear masks, and then changed their mind and said, do wear masks. And it's not because scientists are fraudsters, it's because science is all about waiting to get the evidence before you can form a valid... <laughs> explanation which takes time but i think it took scientists by surprise when as you say science became you know the, the subject of public discourse in quite a, a heavy way i think it took scientists themselves time to realize that what they need to do is go back and explain how how the process works rather than just presenting the facts as if they're you know absolute and irreversible truth you know yeah, obviously assuming some mathematical literacy from members of the public. Yeah, yeah. I, like, I'm sure a lot of other people subscribe on Twitter to various statistical analyses of, of the latest figures and so on. But rather like with polling organisations, you know, you can choose the one that will give you the answer you want. Yes. Obviously, Auden's line hangs over almost any kind of political poetry, you know, from the, in memory of W.B. Yeats saying, you know, poetry makes nothing happen you know, it expires in the valley of its making. Does it bother you or is it liberating to write a poem where, you know, it probably doesn't have, you know, some of your political work has had a sort of impact. You know, it's made people self-conscious about the way they behave. It's made people see politicians in a particularly absurd light. Is your poem something you think, you know, this is a vehicle for, I don't know, attacking the public conversation, or is it a sort of sideline where you can vibe? I never, I never saw it. I, I mean, I think there is no subject that can't be the subject of a poem, so therefore I think it's right that some poets choose to write about public events, whereas others write about very private, intimate, small-scale moments. That's the, the joy of it. I think what I wanted to do with this, really, is I, I didn't want to start a national debate. If it does anything, it will do it to someone somewhere that I don't know about, and that's fine. For me, that's when you write anything, when you put a programme out, you know, you have no more control over it. It's it only then its meaning is derived from how people respond to it, really. And if it's a TV programme, then that's happening in the privacy of lots of different households. If it's a film, you can go along to a cinema, I suppose, and see how an audience responds to it. 
theatre is live, so you can do it. But fundamentally, I think once it's there, it's launched and, you know, it, it goes on its own way. What happens next really is down to those who encounter it, really. If, if he makes someone, if someone reads the poem and it connects with their experiences and it allows them maybe to process something in a different way, then that's great. But that's, you know, I don't ask anything more of it than that people hopefully, or some people will find something there to connect with their own experiences. Well, that's a, an eloquent note to end on. I'm Andrew Nietzsche. Thanks very much indeed. <laughs> Thank you. listening to the spectators books podcast very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the itunes store we'd love to hear from you